Good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. Please turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Chronicles. 2 Chronicles chapter 25. We'll be continuing in this side series of the kings of Judah. 2 Chronicles chapter 25. As we come to God's Word, it is imperative that we pray again and ask for His help. Pray with me. O Lord God, since our whole salvation depends on our rightly understanding Your Word, grant us that grace that is Your light that our eyes can see and our hearts can understand and our wills can obey what You teach and what You reveal in Your Word. In Jesus' name, amen. 2 Chronicles chapter 25, I'll be reading the whole chapter. It's, it's a long chapter, but it's just one chapter. Read with me. Amaziah was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jehoadan of Jerusalem, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, yet not with a whole heart. And as soon as the royal power was firmly his, he killed his servants who had struck down the king, his father. But he did not put their children to death, according to what is written in the law, in the book of Moses, where the Lord commanded, fathers shall not die because of their children, nor children die because of their fathers, but each one shall die for his own sin. Then Amaziah assembled the men of Judah and set them by fathers' houses under the commanders of thousands and of hundreds for all Judah and Benjamin. He mustered those 20 years old and upward and found that there were 300,000 men fit for war, able to handle spear and shield. He hired also 100,000 mighty men of valor from Israel for 100 talents of silver. But a man of God came to him and said, O king, do not let the army of Israel go with you, for the Lord is not with Israel, with these Ephraimites. But go, act, be strong for the battle. Why should you suppose that God will cast you down before the enemy? For God has power to help or to cast down. And Amaziah said to the man of God, But what shall we do about the hundred talents that I have given to the army of Israel? The man of God answered, The Lord is able to give you much more than this. Then Amaziah discharged the army that he had hired to help him from Ephraim to go home again. And they became very angry with Judah and returned to home in fierce anger. But Amaziah took courage and led out his people and went to the valley of salt and struck down 10,000 men of Seir. The men of Judah captured another 10,000 alive and took them to the top of a, of a rock and threw them down from the top of the rock and they were all dashed to pieces. But the men of the army whom Amaziah sent back, not letting them go with him to the battle, raided the cities of Judah from Samaria to Beth Horon and struck down 3,000 people in them and took much spoil. After Amaziah came from striking down the Edomites, he brought the gods of the men of Seir and set them up as his gods and to worship them, making offerings to them. Therefore the Lord was angry with Amaziah and sent him a prophet who said to him, Why have you sought the gods of a people who did not deliver their own people from your hand. But as he was speaking, the king said to him, Have we made you a royal counselor? Stop. 
Why should you be struck down? So the prophet stopped but said, I know that God has determined to destroy you because you have done this and have not listened to my counsel. Then Amaziah, took, then Amaziah king of Judah, took counsel and sent to Joash the son of Jehoahaz, son of Jehu, king of Israel, saying, Come, let us look one another in the face. And Joash the king of Israel sent word to Amaziah king of Judah. A thistle on Lebanon sent to a cedar on Lebanon, saying, Give your daughter to my son for a wife. And a wild beast of Lebanon passed by and trampled down the, the, the thistle. You say, See, I have struck down Edom, and your heart has lifted you up in boastfulness. But now stay at home. Why should you provoke trouble so that you fall and you and Judah with, with you? But Amaziah would not listen, for it was of God in order that he might give them into the hand of their enemies, because they had sought the gods of Edom. So Joash, king of Israel, went up, and he and Amaziah, king of Judah, faced one another in battle at Beth Shemesh, which belongs to Judah. And Judah was defeated by Israel, and every man fled to his home. And Joash, king of Israel, captured Amaziah, king of Judah, the son of Joash, son of Ahaziah, at Beth Shemesh, and brought him to Jerusalem and broke down the wall of Jerusalem for 400 cubits from the Ephraim gate to the corner gate. And he seized all the gold and silver and all the vessels that were found in the house of God in the care of Obed-Edom. He seized also the treasuries of the king's house, also hostages, and he returned to Samaria. Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, lived 15 years after the death of Joash, the son of Jehoahaz, king of Israel. Now the rest of the deeds of Amaziah from first to last, are they not written in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel? From the time when he turned away from the Lord, they made a conspiracy against him in Jerusalem. And he fled to Lachish. But they sent after him to Lachish and put him to death there. And they brought him upon horses, and he was buried with his fathers in the city of David. This is the word of the Lord. Fortune favors the bold. I also like to think it is a flaw of humans, not me, of course, that fortune emboldens the favored. There have been times, again, this wasn't me, when uh, people, unlike me, have played games, say, Settlers of Catan, and have been losing. And the excuse that somebody else might have is that the die are not being rolled in their favor. And then... You know, I might grump or harumph and eventually, uh, you know, feel like I'm going to lose or, you know, the die just aren't favoring me. Uh, this favor, but, but eventually maybe the die do give me favor. And this favor may lead to a victory or just a good run for points for a little while. And when this happens, uh, my posture, my attitude, my words, my actions all indicate that I am a happier person maybe too happy. Fortune emboldens me when the die favor me. Not skill, just luck. Amaziah is a king whose behavior is altered merely by favor. He is one who is emboldened by fortune and favor, not by skill or experience. And we're told he's a king, at first we're told he's a king who does right in the eyes of the Lord, but not with a whole heart. He is a half-hearted king, and he half-heartedly follows 
the Lord and he is half-hearted in his obedience and half-hearted in his sins. We might say, behold, Amaziah, king of Judah. He means well. It's not a resounding endorsement of the Lord's anointed. The Lord does not want half-hearted servants. Satan doesn't actually want half of your heart either. But Satan knows that when he has half of your heart, he often will get the rest. The Lord doesn't want half of your heart. He wants your whole heart. And yet, the Lord knows that he's done a lot more with a lot less. And so, Amaziah is a half-hearted king. He's a would-be hero over whom we ought to sigh. Very quickly, we can realize he can't save. can't save his own people. He's not the type of person who can save us. So our three points this morning will cover these things. First, Amaziah's apprehension, Amaziah's exaltation, and Amaziah's humiliation. First, his apprehension. The kings of Judah each have their faults and shortcomings. We are introduced to Amaziah's imperfection immediately in verse 2. He was not wholehearted in his following the Lord. This is not some general statement about his heart. It's more of a preliminary statement about what we're going to see and why he does what he does. He does things half-hearted because he is not wholehearted. He is young. He's 25 at the start of his reign, and he has a long reign. He reigns for 29 years. His father, Joash, was young, seven, when he began to reign. He reigns 40 years. But if you remember Joash's treachery, Amaziah doesn't have a good example on how to be a faithful king for a long time. And so he doesn't have a great example to follow. So when he becomes king, he takes some time to get his rule established, but once he's learned how to do the politics, he punishes the evildoers who assassinated his father. Maybe this is an indication of a flaw. Perhaps he's, he's vengeful or uh, flawed in some way, but I don't think so. I think we're given an indication that this is a good thing. I think it is just and it is wise. It's just because assassins should be punished for assassinating kings. It's also wise because how can Amaziah trust them not to do that to him? A good king would establish his throne. So we see that he obeys God's law and he does not punish the children of these evildoers. He just punishes the evildoers. So I think verse 4 is an indication of this, uh, the phrase that he does right in the eyes of the Lord, that he is following God's law to a degree. Maybe you know your Bible well and you have a question. Is this not a contradiction? Doesn't it say that uh, in the second commandment, in Deuteronomy 5, verse 9, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So it says in the second commandment, God visits the iniquity of the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. And it says here in 2 Chronicles 25, which is quoting Deuteronomy 24, verse 16, that children do not die for the sins of the father and fathers do not die for the sins of children. Well, I think we need to pay attention to the words. 
The words are critical. Children do not die because of the sins of the father, and fathers do not die because of the sins of the children. But the second commandment is saying that the iniquity is visited, which is another way of saying there will be consequences. There will be suffering. And so with our sin, our children will quite possibly suffer and often do suffer for our own sins. Uh, Handling money poorly, your children are going to suffer for that. Uh, Acting out in anger, they might bear the brunt of that. Uh, A whole myriad of examples of our sins cause suffering, but they are not punishment upon children, or your parents' sins are not punishment upon you. And so, uh, it's important to note that it's the second commandment where this shows up. What is annexed to the second commandment? What is annexed to the second commandment is this warning about the suffering that comes from idolatry. If you worship the wrong things, you can set your children up for suffering. And so as a warning not to worship the wrong things, but to worship the Lord God and to worship Him alone the way that He's revealed. And so we can find ourselves wondering, but aren't we free? Aren't we free to not have to uh, suffer for these things and not have to, uh, not have to be drawn in by these things, but isn't there some freedom here? And say, well, yeah, we, we do have some freedom, but the freedom that we have is we are naturally pulled in towards sin. We have a free will, but it's a free will that has a natural bent towards sin, and so it's an, also a free will that lends itself towards multiplying the suffering in the world, particularly within our own households. And so Amaziah makes sure that the children of these assassins do not die for their father's sins. It's a good sign, but it's only part of the picture. Amaziah's apprehension is shown in his actions. So now he has gained control. He's established royal power in his hands. And now as king, he gets to set the policy, set what's going to happen. And so he assembles his army for war. I can't think of any of the kings in all of the books of kings in Judah who doesn't end up fighting some kind of battle. It's what kings do. And so he has a large army. He's anointed king of Judah, which means he should know that, he, that Judah is a favored kingdom. And so he should find favor in God's eyes. But he makes sure to count his army. How many does he have? How many are there that are 20 years old and upward? And this was a sin and an act of faithlessness on the part of his ancestor David in 2 Samuel. It brought much suffering. And so he thinks he doesn't have enough troops, even though he counts them and he has 300,000. What does he do? He hires another 100,000 just to uh, hedge his bets, cover, cover himself, have an insurance policy. And so he hires a force from Israel. Well, at least they're not foreigners. That's a problem that some of the kings run into. They hire Syrians or other mercenaries. He hires Israelites, uh, but they're apostate. They're not followers of God's covenant. And so they're as good as foreigners. And that's the warning that he's going to receive from the man of God. And so being faithless... They are considered foreigners, and he pays this army, doesn't come cheap, with 7,500 pounds of silver. And I just decided to check that this morning. What does an ounce of silver go, by, go for? Multiply that. That would be about $3 million today, which 
isn't a lot of money for 100,000 guys. It's like 30 bucks a piece. Um, but money might have different value at different times. Um, but it's, it's still a lot of money on the whole to come from the royal treasury. And so God graciously sends a man of God to speak to Amaziah and tell him that he does not need this extra help. He has God. And Amaziah's words are words I relate to very strongly. But what shall I do about the 100 talents of silver that I have given to the army of Israel? When I was about six, uh, my younger brother and I were being um, babysat by some family friends, some church friends for overnight thing, and uh, they put us to work a little bit to help out around the, uh, around the house, around the property. And uh, there was this mention of maybe being compensated for the work, uh, which to a six-year-old, I mean, a dollar or two dollars, that's, that's pretty special. Uh, I, was, I was eager, and, you know, it being 25 years ago, that uh, was worth more then. And uh, so I was, I was getting to the work pretty well and was excited about this opportunity of financial compensation. And then we were riding in the car on the way back to being returned to mom and dad, and I was wondering when this payment was going to go through. Um, and then uh, um, our friend mentioned, oh, maybe I'm not going to pay you. Maybe I'll just stop at the gas station and buy you some candy. I couldn't help but blurt out, but what about the money? And uh, he rebuked me. You be grateful for what people give you. Um, and I zipped it uh, and felt convicted of this desire for money in the moment and this worry that I wasn't going to get what I thought was being offered. And honestly, I didn't really do that much work anyway. Um, and I got the candy. It was delicious. And um, it, was, it was very fair. But uh, I just still remember that feeling of, what about the money? And uh, Amaziah is feeling that about approximately $3 million. What about the money? Uh, I'm a king. I've got a budget. I've got an army. How, how am I going to make this work? And uh, the man of God says, the Lord is able to give you much more than this. There is much gain that comes from having a heart that is not fixated on money, not so short-sighted, but to have eyes that are lifted up towards a greater vision. I hear an echo of the disciples on the boat as Jesus slept, and they said, Lord, do you not care that we are perishing? And he replies, O you of little faith. Each king like Amaziah, like you and I over our little kingdoms, will always be faced with a question of whether we are going to find ourselves opposing God or supporting them, supporting him. We typically fall into a false dichotomy of thinking, is God on my side or is he on the other side? Is he on my side or maybe he's not taking a side? This man of God is reminding Amaziah that he is worried about money and if he has enough soldiers and he's acting like God is not with him. It's almost as if he hasn't considered verse 8. But go, act, be strong for the battle. Why should you suppose that God will cast you down before the enemy, right? This is a, a mirroring question. It's a question, it's, your actions seem to act like you're worried about losing, so you're trying to not lose. Are you worried that God is against you? For God has power to help 
or to cast down. If you don't think God is with you, then consider the possibility that God is against you. Have you considered defecting to His side? For in Amaziah's case, you seem to be acting like God's not going to help you here. And if you don't think He's going to help you, then you probably can be certain He's going to oppose you. He's not going to be neutral. We don't want to worry about whether what side God is on. We want to worry about what, what side we are on and if it's His side. It's a, it's a different way of looking at the same question. And so, we see Amaziah's apprehensiveness. We see a lack of wholeheartedness as he approaches these things. But the Lord is gracious, and so we approach our second point, Amaziah's exaltation. The man of God is calling on Amaziah to lead his army by faith and not by the might of men. Amaziah does this, and he wins a great victory over the Edomites. He defeats his enemies and even dashes his prisoners against the rocks. He most likely gets his money back in the spoil, and he definitely gets a boost to his reputation. He's, he's a winner now. He's a proven winner. He's got control of his kingdom. His army has won, and it has won without the help of mercenaries. He is exalted. He's now a victorious king, but the Israelites, who were the mercenaries and were sent home, on their way back, they kill and they steal. So the man of God's call to faith has not looked like very helpful policy. It's created more problems. Costs are sunk, people are dead, property is damaged or stolen. And Amaziah's gains, they do appear greater than his losses. And so as one who has been raised up by God's grace, he begins to think much of himself. He has been exalted. And then he exalts himself. Perhaps he falls into the trap of thinking, well, I was, I was pretty wise to follow that advice. It's pretty good pretty good idea. I'm a good listener. Um, you know, and I, I did lead the army, right? I did have courage and begin to think of how he accomplished this. And so in his self-exaltation and in his thanklessness, he's, he's brought forth a recipe for his own disaster. And how do we know he exalts himself? Well, often we see idolatry accompany success. God made man in his own image, in Genesis 1 and 2, and ever since the fall, we've been returning the favor. And so we are prone to make gods after our own image. Amaziah is just like any other man. God's favor and victory opens a direct opportunity for idolatry. Amaziah takes the gods of the Edomites and he makes them his own. Amaziah goes from the battlefield to the temple with a new god, leaving the old one behind. How often does success bring new challenges or temptations? Be careful what you wish for, because you just might get it. But again, the Lord is gracious. What does He do? He sends a prophet to speak His Word. We see God's grace in His actions. God's works of providence are His most holy, wise, powerful, preserving, and governing all His creatures, ordering them and all their actions for His own glory. So we see God's providence in all things, and we see God in His providence. He's showing us something about Himself. So here's a tip for studying the Bible, studying a text. Pick a person, a character, God, the king, anybody, one of the, one of the characters, and then just start writing down all of the nouns, or sorry, all the verbs that they do, and stack them up. So what does the king do? Well, the king begins to reign. The king 
kills servants, the king assembles his army, the king hires mercenaries, the king takes courage. We see these things. So we, you know, the king brings idols, seeks gods, uh, and so on. We see what the king does. Now, what do we see what that God does? Uh, the Lord looks upon things. He's watching. The Lord commands things in His Word. The Lord sends a man of God. The Lord sends a prophet. The Lord brings forth things. And so we see God in His actions here in the text. What does God do? And so we're also told things about the Lord. The Lord is able to provide much more than what is lost. And the Lord is patient in His actions. And so Amaziah, in contrast, exalts himself in the face of the Lord's favor. And so verse 15 tells us what God thinks of his exaltation. Therefore the Lord was angry with Amaziah and sent him a prophet who said to him, Why have you sought the gods of a people who did not deliver their own people from your hand? It's one thing to, to, to believe in idols, worship idols. It's another thing to choose the gods of a loser. It's foolish. It's other foolish, but we can see our own selves in these kinds of sins. To choose the idols that are of the losing side. Right? The book of Revelation can be summed up in one sentence. God wins. God wins. So why are we going to choose any other God than God Himself? Why choose a loser when God has revealed Himself as a winner? And so the Lord sends the prophet, but Amaziah will not be left, so that Amaziah will not be left in the dark, and yet he doesn't have ears to hear it. He's half-hearted in his sin. He doesn't kill the prophet. He knows what he's hearing. He just doesn't want to hear it. And he's also half-hearted in, uh, in his obedience. He listens, but he doesn't obey. And so he tells the prophet, I don't want to hear this. Why should you die? For correcting me. We haven't made you a counselor. And so he knows that he's being brought counsel, and he literally tells the prophet, stop speaking. And this is where he's exalted himself to such the point that he won't listen to God. And yet now he's also brought forth his next phase of his, of his rule. That's our third point. It's his humiliation. So he's been exalted, now he'll be humiliated. Just as he exalts himself, God patiently tries to correct him. He maintains his self-exalting ways and leads himself to his own humiliation. He thinks highly of his victory, and he challenges Israel. And so he takes counsel, verse 17, but he took counsel not from the prophet, but from his own counselors, perhaps even from his own mind. And so what does one on their, on their uh, power trip do? When he thinks, you know, I'm, I'm now a winner in defeating the Edomites, how about I go pick on somebody bigger than the Edomites? How about Israel, the northern kingdom? And so he thinks highly of his victory, and he challenges Israel. He says, let us look one another in the face. And he challenges Israel, because they took his money, uh, and there's either he wants to fight, or he wants there to be a marriage, uh, an alliance, or maybe some kind of payment. And so looking, looking someone in the face, just 
kind of confrontational language, but then uh, the king of Israel, Joash, uh, says, speaks in a parable, a parable that would be worthy of Jesus himself. And Joash, king of Israel, sent word to Amaziah, king of Judah, verse 18, a thistle on Lebanon sent to a cedar on Lebanon, saying, give your daughter to my son for a wife. And a wild beast of Lebanon passed by and trampled down the thistle. Fortune favors the bold or it emboldens the favored. Amaziah has lucked his way into a modest victory, and now he's feeling his oats, and he decides to go for a bigger one. Joash, the king of Israel, wisely wants nothing to do with this. He warns him, you're going to get trampled. Joash is probably pretty pleased with the money that's been brought in at no cost. Um, and he tries to dissuade Amaziah, but to no avail. And so he fulfills his own role in being the wild beast that's going to trample Judah. And how does Amaziah fall into the trap of his own foolish thinking? How does, he, how does this happen? Verse 20, But Amaziah would not listen, for it was of God, in more order that he might give them into the hand of their enemies, because they had sought the gods of Edom. This thing is from the Lord. It's his own sovereignty working in his own providence that he is going to bring about the handing over Judah into the hands of their enemies because of idolatry. And so it would be natural to have a sense that Amaziah and Judah are being punished. And there might be a certain truth to that. Life feels crazy from our perspective. We feel like we're not in control. When things don't go our way, they can actually be, it can be tempting when things are terrible to think of being punished. Um, perhaps if there's uh, rank idolatry, uh, there is a certain truth to, to that, but it can also be tempting to think of it in all kinds of circumstances when things aren't going our way or when things are against us or when things are harsh or heavy or hard. It can be natural to think we're being punished. That is not always the case. Uh, it's a natural consequence of Amaziah's foolishness, but the real punishment will come later in the exile. This, I don't think, is punishment as much as it's correction, discipline. When we start trying to interpret all of our events in our lives as punishment or as happening for this reason or that, we can find ourselves in the shoes of Job. His friends and his wife said, you sinned, just admit it. But we're told that he was sinless in that instance. But yet God in his providence was manifesting himself and he was testing Job. Do not fret that the bad things in your life are due to sin. God may and always is testing you and your faith. Success can be a test, like Amaziah. How are you going to handle it? Failure can be a test, like Amaziah. How are you going to handle it? It was said of Job, in all this, he did not sin, yet he suffered greatly. And he didn't even suffer for his sins. He suffered because the Lord was challenging Satan to say, I have a servant who I know is blameless before me. He will not curse me. And so we can say for Amaziah that in all this, he did sin. He lorded his victories over others and unsurprisingly became an idolater like those others whom he defeated. He defeated the idolaters, and then he became one. I don't like prideful people, but it's most likely in my victories over pride 
that I can lord it over other prideful people and then prove to be what I am against. Have you ever felt that way? In my efforts to not sin, I keep on sinning. Who will rid me? Who will rid any of us of this body of sin? But thanks be to God for His indescribable gift, the Lord Jesus Christ. It was Amaziah who exalted himself, and then he was humbled. He's defeated in battle, he's captured, and then his treasury is emptied. All of the gold and silver in the temple and in the palace are removed. Hostages are taken. He is left in a far greater uh, predicament than he was beforehand because he would not listen. He exalted himself, and then he was humbled. The Lord Jesus Christ is one who humbled himself. He was born of a woman, though he was God. He was born under the law, undergoing all the miseries of this life. Life was miserable for Jesus. Life is miserable for me to a degree. But I deserve that misery because I am a sinner. The Lord Jesus was sinless. He does not deserve any of that misery, yet he took it and lived under it. He humbled himself, taking the form of a servant. The Son of Man came to serve and not to be served and to give his life as a ransom for many. He was falsely accused, convicted. He submitted to earthly authorities, though it was his Father in heaven who gave that authority. He was crucified, died, and buried. But then he was exalted. He was humbled unto exaltation. He rose again from the dead. He ascended on high and was seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus was not apprehensive about leaving heaven to come to earth. But for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. And so he was the author and the perfecter of our faith. He was humbled unto exaltation. And if you hear him calling you this morning... If you hear him calling you this morning, you hear him saying two simple words, follow me. But in those two simple words, he means so much more. He's asking you questions if you will follow him. Are you ready to be humbled before you're exalted? Are you ready to be last before you can be first? Are you ready to give up that which you cannot keep? in order to gain that which you cannot lose. So whether you find yourself this morning apprehensive or exalted or humbled, the question is still the same for every one of you. This question is still the same for me. Are you ready to trust His Word or not? May the Son of Man, when He returns in the clouds with power, find faith on the earth. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we have heard from your word. We pray that you would give us ears to keep hearing it, to keep listening to you. Lord, we we are not wholehearted in our following of you. May you turn us from half-hearted followers to wholehearted followers who leave father and mother, brother and sister, spouse and child, when we hear those words, follow me. Lord, help us to decrease that you might increase for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen.